This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today we are going to be talking about how accommodating learners can sometimes go wrong. Of course, making accommodations is very important and beneficial for students, but how do we know that good intentions always lead to good accommodations? As we will hear in the case of English language learners, sometimes a teacher's beliefs can relate to less than ideal accommodations. So joining me to talk about this research is Zandra Diarajo, who's a colleague of mine from right down the hall uh, here at the University of Missouri. Zandra, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've been looking for an opportunity to do a podcast together, and we've had some stuff that's come out. Zandra's written a lot of other articles, but we wanted to wait for one that we could really sink our teeth into and something that Zandra is like the most excited to talk about. <laughs> Took six years. <laughs> we found it. We found it. This is the right one, and it is a very, I think, important uh, study. But let's go back to the beginning. So we were in grad school at the same time, but at different institutions. So where did you do your grad studies, and who did you work with there? I did my grad studies at the University of Georgia, go dogs. And <laughs> my advisor was Denise Bangler. But I worked on research a lot with Chandra Oral, and she was also on my committee. And then Patricia Wilson was on my committee, as was Judy Moscovich. Oh, great team there. And this work that we're going to talk about today is actually from your dissertation study um, and some ideas that you're still thinking about and some important ideas. But I want to go back to your dissertation study. What was your original goal and kind of what you hoped to find when you set out on your dissertation study? Sure. So um, my original goal was, um, so it was 2010, I guess, when I was working on my proposal. Georgia had recently come out with new standards and the Common Core was in Mm -hmm. and cognitively demanding tasks were back in the spotlight and uh, mathematical thinking. So I really wanted to see instances of successful teachers teaching English language learners well um, Mm -hmm. using a reform-oriented approach. So that was my original intent. You wanted to put out there kind of illustrations, examples of some great things happening with the ELLs. Right. Because myself, as a teacher, I, in Orlando, Florida, teaching high school mathematics, um, I did not do a good job accommodating English learners in my classroom, and so I really wanted to put out some positive examples of how this work is being done well with English learners. Mm -hmm. So did you then go in the area and try to find some or ask around, or how did you then start to pursue? (laughs) Right. Uh, So at the time at UGA, um, people were not studying in my department in math education, um, were not studying English learners. So I was kind of flying solo trying to find participants as a graduate student, which was a little difficult because we weren't in an area with a high concentration of English learners, but um, certainly in um, surrounding areas, there were many. And so I started cold calling, and as many people know, that's not really effective. You need an in, really. And so I got an in with one district, and the sheltered, which means that the whole class is EL, teacher there agreed, which was great. And then I found another teacher that I knew from prior work, and she agreed, and her colleague also agreed. So it was really um, points of contact Mm -hmm. at the end, yeah. And at that point, it's a matter of who's going to allow you to do this study rather than maybe going to find the best examples of ELs at that point. Right. I knew ELL instruction. Yeah, I really wanted to be in classrooms that were comprised of English learners, which meant sheltered mathematics classrooms. So Mm -hmm. um, there weren't as many of those just in general. 
you know, I, I was a graduate student. I was pretty ambitious and I was recording their class for two weeks daily and interviewing before and after and doing extensive <laughs> interviews. So <laughs> it was a little ambitious. So I can imagine I scared away some people by just cold calling. Mm-hmm. Now we have the study that has come out in curriculum inquiry. So one of the aspects of your work from the dissertation And I should say the title of the article here is Connections Between Secondary Mathematics Teachers' Beliefs and Their Selection of Tasks for English Language Learners. And this is in the currently online and curriculum inquiry. What ended up being the focus of this article? So now that you got in there, you saw what was happening, where did your attention go? Um, I still wanted to look at tasks, and I wanted to look at the ways in which um, the teachers were supporting classroom discussions in conjunction with those tasks. So that was still the focus. Um, It was just that I didn't see a lot of cognitively demanding tasks, so a lot of low-level tasks ended up being the focus. So really, I downplayed um, their use of cognitively demanding tasks, and just I wanted to know what they were doing and how they were doing it. As they each were specialized English language learner teachers, they had special certifications. So So you have the features of the tasks that they were implementing, and then you have this dimension of teacher beliefs that came in. How did that come into the picture? So... I did not want to do beliefs work. <laughs> that was something that I strongly <laughs> didn't. Yeah. Um, and obviously this um, is for my dissertation. And so this is not the first version of this paper. Um, it's been rejected before. And one of the reviewers helpfully said that, you know, this piece was really interesting of your paper. Um, and it was the beliefs piece that I really didn't want to go into because mm-hmm. uh, that literature is a little bit messy, I think. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting. And it's something that obviously colored the whole experience. So I ended up going there and writing a stronger paper, I think, at the end. Mm -hmm. So now it's going to be this relationship between the tasks they were implementing and the beliefs that they hold about how they view English learners as math students. Right. And those beliefs, um, sometimes you're not really aware you're having them. But I think Keith Latham's framework is a nice way of saying like, well, looking through the practice, you can kind of uncover beliefs and see how those beliefs might manifest in line with what the teachers are saying. Mm hmm. So we have three teachers that are the focus of this article. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about each of those teachers, and then what data did you collect? You mentioned you were there for several weeks, but what exactly was the kind of data corpus that you had to work with? Sure. The three teachers in the study were Ms. Thomas, Ms. Hunter, and Mr. Dubois. Ms. Thomas is at a different district than the other two teachers, and she was Teacher of the Year, and um, she had been teaching for six years. All the teachers, um, coincidentally, had been teaching for six years. And her EL population was different than the other two teachers. They had a sizable Hmong population there, mm-hmm. in addition to Latin American. Um, and then the other two teachers were in a predominantly Mexican area um, and a lot of poultry plants. And they were at the same high school, and they taught across the hall from one another. Okay. And then the data, so you interviewed the teachers, but you also sat in on a lot of their class periods. Yeah. Every day I would observe their class, but prior to each daily observation, I would interview them about what they were about to do. And then after I observed them, we would have a debriefing interview as well to follow up with things that I kind of noticed or picked up on. And then I had um, two extended interviews. So I had a final interview that kind of looked across after I had a chance to watch all the videos. And then I had an extended curriculum interview because I still wasn't sure kind of uh, what they thought about curriculum and they weren't using the kind of tasks that I was hoping for. So I brought in a mix of uh, curriculum tasks that they could like um, go through and tell me about the affordances or constraints of using such tasks with ELs. Mm -hmm. So that allowed me to get their insights into cognitively demanding tasks a little bit more pointedly. Mm -hmm. 
And then speaking of those tasks, so you use the kind of predominant uh, way of thinking about the tasks with cognitive demand. So we've already mentioned that a bit, but the high cognitive demand, low cognitive demand, and the four main levels, is that the main frame that you brought to tasks or did you look at them in another way as well? Um, so that was the main frame. Interestingly, um, and something that I, I hope to write about soon or finish writing about is that I found that framework wasn't adequate for capturing things. So I had initially coded tasks as a one, two, three, or four aligning with um, the Stein et al. But I found a lot of tasks that didn't fit into that framework um, because I didn't think there were um, mathematical cognitive demands related to the tasks. So for example, if a teacher gave a worksheet, but then she ended up doing the problems for the students on the board, the students' mathematical thinking at that point was negligible because they were really just transcribing. So I refer to these as non-mathematical activity, which have been referred to in past articles by Stein and colleagues. Mm -hmm. But that came up a lot in this study. So um, that was something that was like, oh, we need a more nuanced way to describe these non-mathematical activities because Mm -hmm. there were many of them. Okay. So yeah, a lot of people use the four doing math, procedures with connections, procedures without connections, and memorization. Mm -hmm. But there's the other two that you mentioned. So there's the non-mathematical activity, and then there's also um, unsystematic exploration or something. So those are the other two that Mm -hmm. aren't used as often. But you had a lot of the the non-mathematical activity, and you wanted to be able to still say something about those. So then you brought in this contextual kind of frame, like uh, dimension to the tasks as well. Right. So um, Remillard and Kahneman um, did some work together in bilingual classrooms, and they classified tasks by whether they were procedural or conceptual, but also whether they were contextual or not. And they said that when teaching bilingual students, it's nice to have, or more effective to have, contextualized, conceptually focused tasks. So I did consider the context and whether they were contextualized or not as well. Mm-hmm. And also the source of the task. So did they come from a textbook or online software or something else? Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Sandra DeArajo right here from the University of Missouri, and we're talking about her article, Connections Between Secondary Mathematics Teachers' Beliefs and Their Selection of Tasks for English Language Learners. And so speaking of the tasks, so that's kind of the frame that you had for the tasks. Then what did you end up finding when you were visiting these EL classrooms? What were they using, and how were they implementing the tasks? Sure. So um, the teachers cared deeply about the students. They really wanted them to succeed. So the intuitive thing that they did was they stripped the language and they tended to focus on symbolic representations of mathematics in an effort to accommodate language needs, which is exactly what I did as a teacher as well. Mm -hmm. So I found that um, by and large they abandoned textbooks, and the reason for that was they tend to include a lot of words. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was really a focus on quantity of words. So the textbooks had a lot of of words. They were using uh, Carnegie Learning textbooks that... I would call them maybe a blend on the side of reform-oriented, where they had context and um, some cognitively demanding tasks. And instead, the teachers would um, use a lot of software programs to generate problems, um, vast numbers of problems that were um, fairly procedure-focused and devoid of context. And then in the implementation, you mentioned before that the teacher would do a lot of the things where the students kind of just became like passive watchers of it. Is that also in terms of how they were implemented, how they kind of played out as well? Yeah. So um, I didn't get to that in this, but in my dissertation, I talk about how during implementation, the teachers would often take on a lot of the cognitive demand of the tasks. So even if they were low, they would get lower often because the teachers would help by um, doing the tasks with or for the students or um, creating tasks such that they could be 
solved by the students drawing on resources in the classroom. So for example, there's a vocabulary question on a test or some kind of like, you know, fill in the blank for a property, but they could grab a resource off the wall, like a mobile that they made and copy it directly from that. So the cognitive demand transferred from the student to this resource that they were given to help Mm -hmm. with the math. Yeah, and you said those were pretty common, right? Like they would do coloring of math mm-hmm. things or they would make these mobiles that they could then use later to just draw f- information straight from. Right, or flashcards or, you know, copying vocabulary lists, things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With the tasks kind of going in that direction, and you mentioned that it's kind of from this good intention of trying to help the students be successful and take away things that the teachers view it as might get in the way of their success. What's the kind of fuller picture of the teacher beliefs that you came to understand through the interviews and observing their practice? Some of the things that were interesting were that um, the teachers, they wouldn't say necessarily a lot of the deficit things, but through their interviews and their actions, I felt like I had a better understanding of what their, their core beliefs were. Um, And sometimes it was a misunderstanding on my part of what I think they actually did believe. So, for example, Ms. Thomas said that she believed in, she called it discovery mathematics, um, which is kind of like inquiry. I didn't see that, but when I talked to her more, I understood what she meant by discovery was group work. And she did do a lot of group work, as in putting students in groups and letting them collaborate. Every day that happened in her class. It just wasn't what I would call discovery. So she did believe in it. It was just I had to understand what her interpretation is. So I think in many cases, this is um, my challenge as a researcher is to understand how these beliefs are manifesting. And um, I think the underlying belief for all teachers, and maybe this didn't come out as clear as I'd hoped in the article, is that they wanted their students to be successful it's just maybe um, the ways they got in there were counterproductive in some instances. Mm-hmm. So does this go into the idea of stripping away the context? Like, um, Did they actually say explicitly that they were taking away the, that context or reducing the number of words? Obviously, it would manifest in the task they chose. There were no context. So even if they said they believed it was good, you didn't see it manifest in the tasks. Um, and then when I would show them in the curriculum interview, um, tasks from IMP or Core Plus, they would say, whoa, that's just way too many words for my students. I would never give them that, which I totally understand. I think it's really hard to support students in um, understanding how to read a text when you're a math teacher and you weren't trained necessarily to do so. So yeah, I did see it in the outcomes and what they did. Mm -hmm. But then in, in taking away the context, you've actually also taken away an avenue that the student might have to start thinking about the math ideas. Right. Like if they could get on board with what this context is, then that might actually give them resources to bring to bear on the math structure or the math ideas. Right. You could say, um, as the teachers did, there's a lot of words here and it might get in way of the math. Or you could say, this context is a lot of words, but maybe that'll help them connect to some idea that they might understand the math better through. If we just focus on the words, yes, it seems daunting and too much. But if we say, like, well, why might this context or how might this context help the students access the mathematics, I think that's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. Are there other kinds of sort of advice that you would have for teachers based on your thinking and looking in detail at these classrooms? Well, I think what you think is intuitive is not right. So intuitively, we think they're language learners. So we're gonna make it easier by taking away the language. And when we do that in mathematics, we often take away all the cognitive demand because tasks tend to just be you know, procedures because you're not explaining your thinking. 
you're not held accountable for analyzing others' thinking or justifying, and all the mathematical practices are really language intensive. So you kind of take away that aspect of mathematics and it becomes computation, which is not the intent in mathematics any longer, I think. We can agree on as a field. Mm -hmm. I think instead of thinking about how to remove all the language barriers, um, we should think about what supports can we put in place to make this student be successful in accessing the task instead of just like totally dropping the task. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of people say scaffolding. So putting up scaffolding as needed, but then taking it down and realizing that the scaffolds for each EL is different. Um, So if I have a newcomer that um, just came to our country and speaks no English, that's a very different situation than kids that have grown up here and been born in this country and, you know, just have some trouble with comprehending uh, written work or something like that. So I think we need to not see EL students, and I'm guilty of this as well, and I'm trying really hard to be better about it, um, to say, like, ELs need this. It's like, well, no, if they're struggling with this aspect of language, they need this, Mm -hmm. or being more nuanced in my approach. Mm -hmm. And the context of problems is actually important to support the learning. The mathematical practices are important because that's kind of our whole goal, right? If you take away the reasoning and the explaining and the communicating and stuff, then it's sort of like, what are you even doing? Um, So it's like to realize those are all important. And so we actually need to find a way to make those accessible to the ELs rather than just taking them away because it's hard or because it has a lot of words in it or something. Right. Yeah. It's um, so speaking mathematically and academically is a skill and you develop it by hearing other people and being part of a community that employs those words and uh, conventions. And so if the students are never giving opportunities to do that, and I would argue even if they're in a sheltered class where everybody's, you know, gaining proficiency in language while also learning mathematics, they're not able to hear native speakers speak and students use language in different ways. And I think it disadvantages them um, in a way that we shouldn't expect. So they, they need access to the classroom discourse just like everybody else. Our job is to get everybody talking, not just certain groups of kids talking. Mm -hmm. So a moment ago, you mentioned that ELs are individuals. And so so I took from that that, oh, we shouldn't, you know, just group them together as, oh, ELs are all of the same thing, need the same kind of support. They're just as individualized as anybody else is. Mm -hmm. And that made me think of this common comment that is made about EL research. People will say oh, so you're basically just saying do good math teaching. And it's as simple as that, right? Like ELs, they need high cognitive demand tasks. They need context to engage in their reasoning. They need to explain and communicate with each other. That's just good math teaching. So really the only advice we need to give to EL teachers is do good math teaching. Is it as simple as that? Or how would you respond to that kind of comment? Yeah, it's not as simple as that simply because I think Coggins has this in her book. She has this great quote, um, where she says, if we teach in a way that's good for ELs, we advantage everyone. But if we don't particularly attend to ELs, they get left behind, something to that effect. Mm -hmm. But that's true. Uh, If you're not cognizant of students and their particular needs, then they become overlooked and we know what we get. We've been getting it for decades in this country. So we do need to be purposeful and think about language supports in ways that We can give them tools to be successful and attending to the language demands in a particular way. That's not saying that it's going to disadvantage native English speakers. It'll advantage everybody. Mm -hmm. It's the rising tide 
lifts all shifts or whatever the saying is, it's going to help everybody out. But you can't ignore the fact that you have students who are not yet proficient in the language of instruction in your classroom. You have to work to build up that language. And yes, you have to do that for all students. All students are learning to communicate mathematically. But it's especially important to attend to those students because we know there's a historical marginalization of these students. They tend to be of color, which we know there's a lot of issues in this country around students of color and not getting um, being underserved. Mm-hmm. And so um, we do need to be cognizant of that so we can do better. Um, and that means that we attend to language. We look for positioning of these students to make sure that they're, you know, positioned as knowledgeable others and they're not disregarded or stereotyped in particular ways. Mm-hmm. That's a, a good, rich challenge for teachers and educators of all kinds to take on. So in your own work, uh, have you noticed changes in yourself because you've looked so closely at data like this? Yeah, um, several grad students and myself have a June piece where we talk about how I'm still seeing uh, these kind of like blanket statements about ELs or from my own students, pre-service teachers, um, mm-hmm. doing things that I'm like, oh, I, I wish you wouldn't have done it in this particular way. I think we can do better. Um, and so that caused me to look at what I was doing. And I still, um, and it's just so pervasive in our culture and our schooling, it's like ELs, instead of saying like, well, this student is at this level in reading, writing, listening, speaking, whatever, and needs these particular supports, rather than just saying, ELs need this, because that's not true. And I think that's where a lot of the conflation between language and mathematics comes in and these overgeneralizations about like, you know, students from Mexico need this, whereas Mexico is a huge country and very varied. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think it's caused me to say, I I notice it more when I start saying like ELs, I'm like, well, ELs Mm -hmm. who are newcomers or ELs who are Mm -hmm. at beginning or I'm trying to be more particular about my language, and I'm hoping that that'll help translate into more nuanced approaches to supporting students. Yeah. I've been speaking with Zandra Diarajo about her article in Curriculum Inquiry, and I have one more question that you know is coming, Mm because we've (laughs) talked about this before, but I actually don't know your answer that you're going to give to this, because I I could probably give a few possibilities, but I'm not sure what you're going (laughs) to say. So if you were not in math education as your career, what might you do as an alternative like you know bicycle carts you can sell things on bicycle carts sure so i <laughs> i already have a plan out um it would be like bread and roses bicycle cart and i would ride my bicycle around columbia missouri in the summers or wherever i end up and uh sell bread because i love bread i'm portuguese mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> flowers because i love to grow flowers so i just mm. sell bread and flowers on my little cart and get some exercise and sunshine and go around. I imagine you'd have a nice aroma that would be like your, your marketing for you as you bike through and there's like these fragrances coming. Get a little basket for my dogs, maybe a tandem bike for my husband. <laughs> have you already looked into like the city ordinances and stuff on like sales from... Well, we're getting like a bicycle coffee cart. So I think it's like a ah. possibility. So, you know, I could ride by the farmer's market in the summer and poach some of their business. <laughs> yeah, wherever crowds are, you can just be tootling through with your bike. Have a really good bell. <laughs> uh, yeah, just to say, you know, have the aromas and then the little ching-ching exactly. or whatever. <laughs> that would be awesome. Well, we'll look forward to that. And yeah, your your gardening is amazing that you have you. Uh, around your house. Really do some great stuff there. So that would be monetize that. Stuff. <laughs> well, thanks so much for sitting down. I'm glad that we finally found a, a good one to sink our teeth into. Thanks for having me.